This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Outpost, a new science fiction novel from best-selling author W. Michael Gere. Robert J. Sawyer writes, What a ride, excitement, adventure, and intrigue, all told in W. Michael Gere's vivid, compulsively readable prose. Gere hits a home run right out of the park and all the way to Capella. Learn more about Outpost over at gear-gear.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 296 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Steven Pinker. He's a psychology professor at Harvard and the author of many books, including The Stuff of Thought, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and The Sense of Style. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. And today's show is brought to you by Outpost, a new science fiction novel by best-selling author W. Michael Gere. And here's a description of the book. It says, Donovan is a world of remarkable wealth, a habitable paradise of a planet. It sounds like a dream come true, but Donovan's wealth comes at a price. When the ship Turalon arrives in orbit, Supervisor Calco Aguila discovers a failing colony, its government overthrown, and the few remaining colonists now gone wild. Donovan offers the chance of a lifetime, one that could leave her the most powerful woman in the solar system, or dead. Planetside, Talina Perez is one of three rulers of the Port Authority colony, the only law left in the one remaining town on Donovan. With the corporate ship demanding answers about the things she's done in the name of survival, Perez could lose everything, including her life. For Dan Worth, Donovan is a last chance. A psychopath with a death sentence looming over his head, he can't wait to set foot on Port Authority. He will make one desperate play to grab a piece of the action, no matter who he has to corrupt, murder, or destroy. Captain Max Taggart has been the corporation's go-to guy when it comes to brutal enforcement. As the situation in Port Authority deteriorates, he'll be faced with tough choices to control the wild Donovanians. Only Talina Perez stands in his way. Just as matters spiral out of control, a ghost ship, the Freelander, appears in orbit. Missing for two years, she arrives with a crew dead of old age and reeks of a bizarre death cult ritual that deters any ship from attempting a return journey. And in the meantime, a brutal killer is stalking all of them, for Donovan plays its own complex and deadly game, the secrets of which are hidden in Talina Perez's very blood. Rave Reviews writes, Mike Gear does for science fiction what J.R.R. Tolkien did for fantasy, and he does it with panache and elan. And Library Journal writes, Galactic intrigue combines with military SF in a tightly woven, intricate story with strong male and female characters. Highly recommended. So again, the book is called Outpost by W. Michael Gear, and you can learn more over at gear-gear.com. So that's G-E-A-R-G-E-A-R.com. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Stephen Pinker. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, and so your new book is called Enlightenment Now. So how'd this book come about? Uh, it was something of a sequel to my 2011 book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, uh, which itself was inspired by my coming across uh, many data sets showing that contrary to the impression that you might get on the news, violence has been in decline. If you plot homicide rates over the centuries, if you plot war over the decades, if you plot violence against women, if you plot uh, violence against racial minorities, uh, if you plot the abolition of slavery, you see graph after graph showing improvement, uh, even though, of course, the news will focus on the violent incidents that remain. Well, similarly, I came across uh, graph after graph showing that other measures of human well-being had, had improved. Uh, fewer people are starving to death. Fewer people are um, uh, extremely poor. Uh, fewer people are illiterate. Uh, more of the world is uh, uh, democratic, and uh, uh, diseases have, are going into decline. And I realized that there, too, there was a story that people were not appreciating uh, because gradual improvements never make the news. You never see a newspaper headline that says uh, 180,000 people escaped from extreme poverty yesterday, hmm. even though they could have run that headline for, for the past uh, 30 years. So I thought there's a story to be told uh, in, in graphs, but also it was a story that cried out for an explanation. Uh, I don't believe there's any mystical 
uh, arc of progress or, or, or dialectic that just makes things get better by themselves. There has to be a cause. And I uh, identified uh, the, the cause of, with uh, the values of the Enlightenment, with the uh, focus on reason and rationality, a focus on science, and uh, a value of humanism, the idea that the well-being of uh, individual people matters more than the glory of the nation. It, it may sound obvious, but it, in fact, it isn't. Hmm. Well, right. So if I had to sort of sum up the thesis of this book, I would kind of put it as better technology leads to greater wealth, which leads to better education for everyone, which leads to more enlightened values for everyone, which leads to generalized human flourishing. Would you say that's a fair summary of the book? It leaves out the humanism because the technology by itself can be used for, uh, uh, for, for, for any purpose, for making people better off or making them worse off, as, as in the case of uh, weaponry. But uh, uh, technology that is wedded to humanistic aims, namely making people, people healthier and happier and longer lived and better educated, uh, can and has led to progress. Yeah. Well, so I'm completely with you on this, the basic thesis. I mean, it's interesting. Um, a week or so ago, I was interviewing Bill McKibben, the environmental activist, and we were having a bit of a debate whether modern people have lives that have more meaning or not than medieval peasants. And being sort of a fantasy science fiction fan, I've read a lot of about medieval history, and it just seems blazingly obvious to me that our lives are have more meaning than the life of a medieval peasant. But you get a pushback on that from intelligent well-read people. Yeah, you, you do. To my and I'm as astonished as you are because I think nothing could be more meaningless than basing your life on uh, things that are false, such as that the world, that the Earth is the center of the universe, or that our uh, souls are rewarded or punished in an afterlife, or that uh, misfortunes like plagues and and uh, epidemics are caused by witches. Uh, that that seems to me worse than meaningless. <laughs> it's uh, they're 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 pernicious. We we now understand so much about how the universe works. Uh, we have so many opportunities to enrich ourselves with knowledge, with beauty, with stimulation, with world, the world's uh, cultural delights. Uh, for me, there's no question that life is more meaningful now. Yeah, and so I, I, I totally agree with that premise, but I, I learned a lot from this book of just specific examples from history that I didn't know about. So one of the ideas I had was that automobiles just did had a lot of negative impacts, which I guess is true, but I had no idea how much worse traffic accidents were before automobiles. You talk about streetcars and how the Brooklyn Dodgers were originally named after the New York City pedestrians because they were always jumping out of the way of streetcars that were about to kill them. Yeah, that was one of the surprises in writing the book is to learn how dangerous life used to be. Uh, pretty much when any technology is uh, uh, was introduced, there was a uh, a big jump in people getting uh, mashed and sliced and uh, run over by the new machines. But um, uh, you know, that may not be so surprising. But what is surprising is that in case over case, the uh, safety engineers went to work, uh, often under pressure of reformers and, and muckrakers, and uh, brought the, the the danger down. That uh, car safety uh, cars are are probably 96% safer in terms of fatalities than they used to be. Even uh, walking on the sidewalk is uh, more than 95% safer than it used to be, and that's true of uh, the danger of being burned to death, being drowned, falling to your death. Um, fire departments are putting themselves out of a job. They, they, they now respond mostly to heart attacks, and most fire departments will, will have a serious burning building every other year. Uh, and it, it, I think it does hold something of a lesson in terms of how afraid we should be of technology, namely that new technologies uh, can be threatening, but there's a natural arc in which society pushes back and uh, tries to wring out the benefits of technology without the dangers. Right. And you talk about how there's very little chance of some of these things reversing themselves. Like you say that it's very unlikely that we'll wake up one morning and find that our buildings have become more flammable. Yes. I mean, there they're, they're certainly can, can be nasty surprises. Um, you know, World War II was a, a pretty big setback for, uh, for the entire world. And we have no guarantee that there can't be setbacks like a, like a nuclear war. But uh, but yes, I mean many of the uh, most of the improvements that I talk about are not kind of cyclical, uh, like like inflation or or interest rates uh, or fashion. 
but but uh, they they build on on themselves. That that as people uh, discover the benefits of sending their kids to school, uh, they don't suddenly turn around and say, well, let's let's put them back to work on the farm and uh, have them quit school at, at the age of ten anymore. And likewise with um, most public health improvements. Again, there's always a possibility of setbacks. You've got the um, uh, uh, anti-vaccine. Uh, crusaders who are threatening to push things back, but fortunately they have uh, not, not achieved much, much success so far. So the danger is always there, but the overall progression is once you discover a better way of, of, uh, of doing things, it's not so easy to give it up. Now, one of the big changes you talk about is how basically every generation is more liberal than the generation that came before them, and they don't change particularly as they get older. Um, do you see that just continuing to progress until it's like Star Trek and everyone's super liberal, or does that plateau at some point? <laughs> it's, it's a crucial question, and it, it, that was another big surprise in, in writing the book, that um, if you uh, project back to the 60s, and that's pretty much as far back as we can go with continuous uh, data, um, you, you do, as you said, you find that, that uh, generations uh, are getting more liberal. People also uh, got more liberal with the changing times. So there was a zeitgeist effect in addition to a, a cohort or generational effect. But it has occurred in every region of the world, uh, so much so that nowadays in the most conservative part of the world, namely uh, the Islamic Middle East and North Africa, in many ways they are as liberal, even a bit more liberal, than people of the same age in, say, Sweden or Norway in the early 1960s. And at first, uh, at first when I saw that graph, I just couldn't believe it. What are you talking about? People in, in, in uh, you know, in, in Libya today are more liberal than people in, in um, Sweden in the early 60s. But when you think about it, if you actually go back to people's attitudes in the 60s, the idea of, say, gay marriage, you ask a, uh, a Swede in 1960 what they thought of gay marriage, they think you were nuts, um, or women's equality. Uh, we, we tend to underestimate how much the world has changed, particularly when it comes to generation-by-generation generation turnover. Now, there's an old cliche that if you're uh, not a liberal when you're 25, you have no heart, and if you are a liberal when you're uh, 55, you have no head. Uh, it's been attributed to about uh, 20 different quotation magnets. But anyway, it turns out to be false. That uh, People don't consistently get more conservative when they get older. On the contrary, when it comes to uh, tolerance, they tend to carry their liberal values with them as they get older. Now, as the generations get more liberal, do you think that it would, could ever go too far where you would say, oh, this generation coming up is too liberal, it's, it's gone too far? There, there, there may be some signs that just liberalism in terms of, uh, say, sympathizing with uh, with victims, for example, uh, certain designated victim groups uh, could go too far and it could push back against uh, standards of rule of law and justice. I think many observers have pointed that that might be a, uh, uh, a side effect of the, uh, the, the Me Too movement, the, the quite legitimate uh, pushback against sexual harassment, but it can lead to um, indiscriminate uh, accusation and presumption of guilt, which we, we, we kind of spent a couple of centuries overcoming. Uh, there might maybe a cynicism about democracy that, that is, uh, that we see in some younger cohorts where instead of seeing, uh, the hope for improvement lie in, uh, procedures like checks and balances and, uh, elections and constitutional, um, uh, rights. There's more of a uh, kind of good guy versus bad guy morality play. Um, so these are potential risks. We don't know how they will play out as uh, people in their 20s um, uh, get, get older and, and perhaps in some ways more mature. I mean, because you talk in the book about how some comedians, like you mentioned Jerry Seinfeld um, and Bill Maher, refused to go to Chris Rock, I think, refused to go to colleges now because the um, the students are so politically correct and they are, are offended by everything. And I just wonder if, yeah. those, if those students carry those attitudes forward into their life, is uh, stand-up comedy going to be kind of like elephants in the circus or something where it's just uh, <laughs> right. not worth doing anymore because there's so much backlash against it? It's a, it's a frightening prospect. Uh, and one, and in fact, I've got to say that in Enlightenment Now, like as in all, all my books, I try to 
uh, incorporate um, uh, vignettes of humor from popular culture to illustrate certain social points. And just in the couple of months between sending the book off to press and um, and the book actually appearing, uh, Louis C.K. Uh, uh, was disgraced, and uh, Woody Allen put under, uh, I think, an unjust class suspicion. Uh, I'm kind of glad that it went off to press before I could I could be pressured into taking those bits out because they were hilarious and they were right on point in terms of the uh, social trends. And indeed, through th- throughout history, it's often the comedians who are the most astute social critics. They get people to laugh at themselves and to to laugh at institutions and norms that they hadn't questioned. So we really do lose a lot just in terms of the of desirable social change if people are so sensitive that they get to shut up the, uh, the, 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 the funny men and funny women. Now, the, the, the question, though, getting back to your question, are we, is this going to be a generational trend that will eventually take over? We don't really know how many of the students get outraged or whether there's a very vocal minority that can amplify their outrage through social media uh, and uh, that they may not be representative of an entire generation. And I certainly know from the students that I see at Harvard that uh, by no means is the current generation of students uniformly politically correct or uh, repressive of opinions they, they don't agree with. There there are some, they're very vocal, but they, they, they certainly aren't all. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, another thing I want to ask you about is you say that uh, over the course of the 20th century, atheism increased by a factor of 500 and then doubled again in the 21st century so far. So <laughs> do you think we're heading again like like a Star Trek kind of future where atheism pretty much takes over everywhere? Yes. The uh, the factor of 500 was, was somewhat whimsical in that the percentage uh, was so low at the turn of the 20th century that uh, you know, when you have a, a le- less than 1%, it doesn't take much to increase it by 500%. Um, but yeah, there's no doubt that, uh, that, that secularism, atheism, agnosticism, humanism, free thinking has uh, increased. The um, pushing in the other direction is the fact that people who believe in God have uh, more babies. So the, the, the total number of uh, atheists and secularists in some countries doesn't necessarily increase just because they're kind of outbred by the by the true believers. But but it's definitely a a, a, a trend. In fact, there's an idea in sociology called the secularization hypothesis that as societies get richer and better educated, their citizens tend to become more secular, and that that seems to be a, a pretty strong trend. Um, even though there aren't too many countries where a majority of people call themselves atheists, partly that's because the word atheism still has a kind of icky feeling to most people. Uh, it just sounds like you're amoral or without values, and so a lot of people are just squeamish about identifying as atheists. Still, in many countries, it's, it's a quarter or a third or 40 percent, um, and the people who deny that they're atheists, often have kind of a, a kind of squishy theologians. It's not that they have a very well-articulated uh, conception of God. Um, they would have a vague sense, well, I'm, I'm you know, kind of spiritual, but not religious. So in terms of with a retreat from old, old-timey religion, of believing in a father in the sky who punishes you in an afterlife, that's gone, gone way down. At least, certainly in the West, uh, in the industrialized countries of East Asia, uh, not so much in Latin America, and, and uh, certainly not in the, um, uh, the the Muslim world yet. Well, yeah, I mean, I have to say, as a uh, science fiction fan, one thing that kind of jumped out at me in the book that I want to ask you about is you say uh, some commentators project the megalomania of homo sapien males on every form of intelligence, warning that we must not search for extraterrestrial life, lest an advanced race of space aliens discover our existence and come over to subjugate us. So uh, do you think we, it's fine for us to be um, sending signals out into space because we any advanced civilizations are likely to be more enlightened or uh, benevolent than we are? Uh, yeah, that, that that's something that does not keep me up at night, and I think I, I don't worry about sending signals out into uh, out into space. Um, you know, I think there was an incorrect narrative of the arc of history, uh, and it's only recently I think that we that we realize that it's incorrect, or at least we, we can't be sure that it's correct. The old narrative was a kind of Promethean Faust Frankenstein narrative that as uh, 
humanity or for that matter any uh, species with advanced intelligence comes to master nature there'll be an inevitable progression to increasingly destructive weapons eventually to nuclear weapons um, to um, uh, all out war and uh, the the extinction of the uh, of life on the planet that was considered to be kind of a natural uh, arc of history. But now that we've seen that uh, war has, in, at, least, at least on this planet, has been in decline, countries don't fight each other very much anymore. Um, they used to at the drop of a hat, but the big, powerful 800-pound gorillas have not fought a direct war against each other since 1953, U.S. versus China in Korea. There have been no great power wars since then, uh, and there have been very few wars of country A declares war on country B, and they fight it out with tanks and uh, gunships and aerial bombardment. There have been civil wars where the, the popular front for the liberation of whatever um, uh, challenges a government, often uses uh, terrorism to cause some local mis uh, misery but uh, generally doesn't, doesn't really uh, change the, the borders of a map very much. And even that uh, has been on bumpy and uneven, but, but definite decline. So it, it's too early to say that this is the arc of history. But it wouldn't be shocking because when you think about it, there is, you know, just as the 1960s peacenik said, uh, war is unhealthy for children and other living things. It's a really stupid way to run your affairs, um, even if you've got um, megalomaniacal tendencies. As soon as you rise up and declare that you're that you have intentions to, to conquer your neighbors well your neighbors are going to start to get nervous and they're going to try to take you out uh it's just much more logical if everyone agrees hey each one of us will forego all of the, the the joys and glories of conquest in exchange for not worrying about being conquered in turn and the fact that we have uh institutions like the united nations and international law uh, that don't succeed 100% at preventing wars, but they've been driving the rate down. And it's, I think it's not inconceivable that wars between countries will go the way of slave auctions and, and dueling, just be seen as too ridiculous for any reasonable uh, country to engage in. So, again, there'll still be civil wars, but although it's too early to predict that this will happen, uh, it m may happen. And uh, stretching ourselves even a little further, maybe that's the natural arc of the development of civilizations, uh, including ones on other planets. Mm -hmm. I mean, I kind of agree with the logic that building an interstellar civilization is difficult enough that you probably can't do it unless you have a highly functional society. But you always, I guess, have the risk of what if we run into the Jeffrey Dahmer or the Al-Qaeda or something of some alien civilization? Um do you think that, that is that a risk at all? Uh, it isn't one that keeps me up at night, but uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't rule it out. But uh, just the possibility of encountering any form of um, extraterrestrial life uh, is, is completely uncertain. Then, uh, since most people aren't Jeffrey Dahmer, um, the it's it's. it's so rare, at least so far, rare to the, that is non-existent to contact uh, other um, planetary civilizations. That the fact that we would happen to uh, be in the sights of the, the, the few Jeffrey Dahmers among them, at least, at least it isn't something that, that I worry about. Hmm. Um, and then you also mentioned aliens just a little bit. You, you have this passing line. Um, would the works of Aeschylus or El Greco or Billy Holiday be appreciated by sentient agents with brains and experiences unimaginably different from ours? Um, yes. It's, it's kind of an imponderable question, but is there such a thing as beauty that is not in the eye of the beholder? Now, uh, that is, does beauty objectively exist in the universe? Now, I mean, at first that sounds totally crazy. I mean, uh, you know, warthogs find, you know, the, the male warthog finds the female warthog sexy and, and vice versa, and, and, and we don't. <laughs> um, uh, on the other hand, um, there there are these uncanny cross-species standards of beauty, like flowers. Uh, you know, flowers are designed to uh, attract bugs, but they also attract us, and, and our brains are pretty different from bugs' brains. Or um, birds, colorful birds, you know, peacocks and cardinals and orioles. Um, the, uh, what is it, what, what, what are these 
uh, evolutionary forces selecting for that as a complete accident or byproduct, they tickle our brains and not just the brains that they were intended for. Now, it's possible that there are certain anti-entropic patterns that uh, the, the, the natural course of entropy is for everything to get smushed together into a kind of dull brown, uh, a brown kind of gruel, and that any uh, anything in the universe that uh, shows self-organization in local defiance of entropy, because it's got a bright color or a symmetrical shape or a regular pattern, uh, will will uh, arouse our detectors for counterentropic patterns uh, because they are probably causally potent. It's not just the same old uh, dust and gruel and, and mush. Uh, and it, it's conceivable that other intelligences have a sense of beauty that is not wildly different from ours because they too might be expected to be attuned to uh, counter-entropic forces and patterns in, uh, in, in nature. Now, it, it may be pushing things to say that, uh, that, 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 that little green men from Alpha Centauri would groove to Thelonious Monk. <laughs> I don't think I'd push it that far, but it does raise intriguing questions. In, in any case, the way I answered it is probably not that much, but compared to uh, science, where that science you'd expect that any intelligent species would have a, uh, a keen appreciation of science, because as soon as you have intelligence, you're going to be curious about how your world works. Well, it just seems to me that aliens would likely, I mean, they would be subject probably to the same evolutionary imperatives as we are. And so, for example, in order to travel between the stars, they would have to be pretty smart. And in order to be smart, they would probably have to have a pretty big brain. In order to have a pretty big brain, they would probably have to care for their young pretty well. Um, so they would be able to understand, you know, uh, narratives about loving your children or something would probably resonate with them more so than just chance distribution of genetic of genes or something would predict. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating question, and you know, there too, what we are coming to understand about evolution is that, um, as you say, there are certain patterns of altruism that are uh, kind of built into the evolutionary process, despite the fact that uh, the, the, the background process, the overwhelming process in evolution is competition among replicators. But still, uh, whenever you have genetic relatedness, uh, then you have um, uh, nepotistic altruism, that is, you care about the well-being of uh, creatures that carry the same genes that you do. And there's also the possibility of reciprocal altruism, namely that uh, as long as the world uh, contains asymmetrical costs and benefits, so I can deliver a huge benefit to you at a small cost to myself. You know, you're drowning, I extend a stick, uh, you grab the stick and I pull you out, cost me, you know, 30 seconds, gain you your life, uh, then I would certainly want you to do the same to me if our roles were ever reversed. <laughs> and that kind of uh, logic, that kind of game theoretic uh, asymmetry of payoffs in the world would tend to select for creatures that would extend benefits to each other, maybe even have a sense of uh, gratitude, of guilt, of trust, of righteous anger. And it wouldn't be shocking if a lot of human emotions were found uh, in, in uh, other species as long as they evolved by Darwinian natural selection. Yeah. Okay, so one of the big topics uh, right now is AI and the dangers of AI. I feel like I get a book in the mail about this about every other week. Um, yes. And you're uh, you're pretty um, relaxed about this. Uh, could you talk about why you're uh, why you don't you're not so uh, so worried about AI? Yeah, I, I think a lot of the AI fears are going to go the way of the Y2K bug. Uh, for those of us who remember the year, uh, the years leading up to the year 2000, that was when uh, computers were going to all crash because of the bug in uh, representing the year by just its last two digits, and supposedly. Uh, ICBMs were going to uh, shoot out of their silos and nuclear power plants were going to melt down and planes were going to fall out of the sky because of this bug. Uh, I, I tend to think that the existential fear of AI is going to fall into that category. Now, there is a legitimate fear of um, uh, jobs being made obsolete by automation, where the, uh, the concern is, are new jobs going to be created at the rate that old jobs become obsolete? And if not, what are how, how is society going to uh, compensate? Uh, that's kind of an economic fear. But the technological fear uh, 
it's really two fears, and I, I do think they're, they're completely uh, overblown. One of them is that AI will be malevolent and, and want to enslave us and subjugate us, and uh, I argue that that's a confusion between intelligence and uh, dominance, that we've been too impressed by the fact that we are primates, so we're both you know, pretty smart animals, and uh, we we beat each other up, and we, we try to um, uh, bully each other and uh, um, subjugate each other. But that doesn't go along with intelligence by its very nature, and there's no reason to think that it would uh, somehow materialize in a system that did not evolve by natural selection, but was designed by uh, human engineers. The, the other fear is... Um, sometimes called the value alignment problem, that uh, we would kind of turn over the, the universe to uh, an artificial intelligence with a vague instruction to you know, make people happier or to uh, regulate the environment or uh, cure disease, and the system would not uh, would, would so relentlessly carry out that goal that it would um, uh, eliminate us or, or, or massacre us as a byproduct. You know, maybe it would, if we say to an artificial intelligence cure cancer, it would, uh, conscript us all as, uh, guinea pigs in fatal experiments. Or we, we gave it the instruction to make people happy and it would, uh, uh implant us all with, uh, uh, with antidepressant drugs dripping into our veins 24-7. Uh, I, I think these are completely absurd. Um, because they depend, first of all, on the, the contradictory idea that humans are so brilliant that we could invent a, uh, uh, an intelligence that could, uh, you know, instantly cure cancer or, or, uh, uh, regulate the environment, but at the same time so stupid that we would give it control over every molecule in the universe without testing, testing it for safety. Uh, the other contradictory premise is that the AI itself would be so brilliant that it could cure cancer or transmute ele uh, elements or rewire brains, but so stupid that it would misinterpret a uh, simple instruction as to what we want. Like, well, when we said cure cancer, we didn't mean cure it that, in that way. Now, any system that would not realize that is not intelligent, it's idiotic. And so I think the premise just contradicts itself. Yeah, I tend to agree with you that I, the idea that human, humanity is going to end up in a war for survival with an AI system, anything similar to anything that's even currently dreamt of for development seems like a big stretch to me. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be more worried about um, AI systems being put to malicious use by human actors like the Russians programming AIs to churn out computer viruses by the millions or something like that. But a lot of people are really worried about this. I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking, who are not, um, as you put it, progressive phobics or, uh, or anything like that. What, what do you think makes really highly technical, really highly intelligent people um, get this wrong in your view? There is a syndrome of the tech prophet. And by prophet, I mean in the Old Testament sense of Jeremiah or Isaiah. Where these, these guys are nerds. They build gadgets. They make money. Uh, and they kind of feel, oh gee, am I being socially irresponsible? I should probably say something that uh, gives me a bit of a halo. Uh, and so you get warnings that I think are completely uh, out of whack in order to uh, attain a kind of instant seriousness. I mean, if Elon Musk was serious about the AI threat, he'd stop building those self-driving cars, uh, which are the, the first kind of advanced AI that we're going to see. Now, I don't think he uh, uh, stays up at night worrying that someone's going to program into a Tesla, take me to the airport the quickest way possible, and the car is just going to make a uh, beeline across sidewalks and parks, mowing people down and uprooting trees because that's the way the Tesla interprets the, the, the command take me to by the quickest route possible. That's just idiotic. You wouldn't build a car that way uh, because that, that isn't an example of artificial intelligence. Plus, he gets sued and there'd be reputational harms. Uh, you, you, you test the living daylights out of it before you let it on, on the streets. And, and it being intelligent means that it wouldn't do something so stupid as to, to take the straight line and, and mow down pedestrians to get there. You know, that's why hypocritically he warns about AI, but he's the world's, uh, most, uh, uh, energetic purveyor of it. Um, 
So I th- in a poll of the world's leading AI researchers, the vast, vast majority uh, did not take this seriously, more, well more than 90%. Well, that's interesting when you say he has sort of perverse incentives to say profound seeming things. I mean, that's kind of a current theme, uh, uh, a continuous theme of this book is that a lot of our uh, incentives are misaligned in terms of media and the intelligentsia that they just say uh, shocking things or scary things rather than, you know, the unexceptionable truth, as you put it, that, you know, things are getting better pretty steadily and there's dangers, but, uh, you know, we have uh, pretty good tools, it seems, to deal with them. Well, it's, you know, if we, if we keep our eye on the ball and, 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 and um, keep an eye out for genuine threats like climate change, like, like nuclear war, and um, you know, not, not get distracted by the, um, you know, uh, <laughs> if I can say it, science fiction dystopias. I mean, uh, f- forgive me on this, <laughs> on this show. <laughs> but uh, actually, ironically, of course, some of the, the greatest science fiction writers were were, were terrific op- optimists, uh, you know, Asimov and Clark. And uh, but there is this this genre, and it's because it's not just uh, technologists, but uh, social critics in general know that they can uh, achieve kind of instant seriousness if they warn that everything is going to uh, collapse, that we have a sick society and it's rotten at the core and every time you see something go, going wrong, it's further proof. Uh, as a, a, fi- a financial writer, Morgan Housel put it, pessimists sound like they're trying to help you. Optimists sound like they're trying to sell you something. And so <laughs> there's kind of a market pessimism that it, it's not that we should be optimistic and just look at the the, the, the sunny side of everything. We should just be accurate and uh, reckon, not not get fooled by headlines, but look at the uh, the trends and the data. Um, not everything goes well all of the time. Not everything always gets better. Some things do get worse, but we should be uh, accurate as to what they are and not just spin out the worst case fantasies. Yeah. Well, speaking of science fiction, you um, there's this. You're, at one point in the book, you're talking about the benefits of abstract thinking, uh, and you say uh, Flynn has speculated, and I agree that abstract reasoning can even hone the moral sense, the cognitive act of extricating oneself from the particulars of one's life and pondering what would the world be like if everyone did this, can be a gateway to compassion and ethics. And that thought experiment of extricating oneself from the particulars of one one's life and pondering what would the world be like if everyone did this sounds exactly to me like the act of telling a science fiction story do you is that fair would you say oh absolutely and in fact if you uh you know if you take moral philosophy 101 uh or or, or even better you dive into the technical literature and moral philosophy in the in the philosophy journals it's kind of all science fiction it's you know what would happen if and you know i mean it's not very good science fiction <laughs> as, as as literature but it's uh, putting together an imaginary world and exploring the consequences to see what you really uh, deep down believe. You know, a simple example is the uh, you know, the, the trolley problem. Uh, you know, imagine there's a, a hurtling trolley, and uh, if it continues on its way, it'll kill um, five people, five workers on the track who don't see it's coming. It, it coming, but if you flip the switch, it'll um, be diverted and kill only one person. Should you flip the switch, and there are all kinds of variations that, that start to go into the realm of science fiction. But it's these stretches of the imagination that clarify uh, what you really believe. So yes, yeah, science fiction and, and uh, moral philosophy are, are often pretty similar. Yeah. Well, I mean, your your wife, uh, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, has a book that I'm hoping to read one of these days. It's called Plato at the Googleplex. And it has what seems to me sort of a science fictional premise that Plato is sort of reincarnated or something in the modern world and gives his thoughts about the modern world. And people often criticize science fiction as saying, like, oh, it's not about real life. And, uh, you know, I, I think some people would, would say, oh, Plato can't travel through time or whatever. So this isn't a real, you know a real real life but it seems like it's so obviously missing the point with a uh you know a setup like that exactly no that's exactly right and of course she she has uh plato appear on the uh on fox news on a kind of an o'reilly factor type show she has him have his brain scanned at a neuroscience lab she has him visit the google headquarters the googleplex um, but yes, exactly. To, to ask how did he get there, it really is missing the point. It's, it's a mind-expanding uh, exercise, and in uh, her, her case, it's to make the point that 
the ancient Greeks came up with almost all of the philosophical questions that we continue to uh, ask today. Now, they didn't come up with the answers. In fact, their answers really were primitive by our standards, and, and uh, Rebecca argues that there really has been moral progress. But in terms of the issues, the, the things we worry about, uh, Plato and the Greeks uh, mapped out an awful lot of them, and that's why Plato could plausibly uh, engage in a, a real conversations with contemporary figures. They disagree, they argue, but they're kind of talking about the same things, the same issues and questions. And, and, and as, you, as you point out, that's what science fiction allows you to do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so one of the things that has really interested me lately is that there are all these scientists now running for Congress. They've been so um, you know, horrified by the Trump administration that now they're getting into politics for the first time. Uh, and I'm totally in favor of that. But you say in the book, um, a call for everyone to think more scientifically must not be confused with a call to hand decision making over to scientists. Many scientists are naive when it comes to policy and law and cook up non-starters like world government, mandatory licensing of parents and escaping of a, a befouled Earth by colonizing other planets. So I was just curious, like, just what is your general take on the scientists who are running for Congress now? Oh, I think it, I think it's a fantastic development. I mean, the, the scientists who are running for Congress are are not nice. I mean, they aren't the people who are proposing uh, uh, you know, polluting the Earth until it's uninhabitable and, and setting up colonies on Mars. That would be more Newt Gingrich, who is not not, not a uh, scientist. No, I'm 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 highly in favor of, of that, and and it, it, you know it has to be emphasized. These guys are not, and, and women are not nice, because the entire mindset of uh, Congress is shaped by. Uh, the, the legal way of thinking, which is that the goal uh, the, of the game is to win, not not to achieve the truth, but just to use whatever technique possible available, uh, you know, f uh, fair or foul, to uh, so that your side wins over the other side. Now, that's really not a good way to run a society, because you know society runs by you know, actual physical laws, uh, and at least in principle, the scientist mindset, which is let's figure out what the truth is and we might be wrong. Uh, that's a, just a much better way to to, uh, to run things, and we just need more people in Congress who begin with that attitude. When you say that world government is a non-starter, do you mean that just in the per current political climate that's not going to go anywhere, or do you think world government is just a dumb idea in general? You know, I think it's uh, – well, who knows what, what, what we're going to see in 100 years. Um, but I, I tend to think it's uh, un, unworkable that uh, the analogy to national government doesn't work because with nations, you can always uh, emigrate, but uh, with a world government, you um, there's nowhere to go. And uh, also, a uh, government – tends to need at least some degree of cultural coherence for everyone to agree on a set of, of norms and laws. Uh, and you, know, you can have that in a, something like you know, France or even the United States, but the entire planet uh, is unlikely anytime soon. And, and they, also the checks and balances of that we have now different countries learning from each other, setting examples, being safety valves if, if one gets too uh, repressive. Uh, you wouldn't have it if you had control over the entire planet in one legislative body. That having been said, we, do, we are having a kind of patchwork of um, substitutes for, for world government. There are treaties like the, the one that patched the ozone hole, the one that banned atmospheric testing, controls on whaling. Um, war crimes, uh, none of which is imposed by a global police force, but that work by a kind of uh, moral uh, shaming and bullying, by reputation, by wanting to be a member of a club that brings benefits like trade and um, uh, a sharing of, of uh, intelligence. So we are getting a kind of patchwork of transnational uh, entities that might be the closest we come to a world government. And, and those I'm, I'm very much in favor of. Mm. I mean, one of the things that you're promoting in this book is nuclear power, um, because you say that just uh, trying to do it with renewables alone is totally impracticable. You say it would basically be the entire Western hemisphere it would have to be wind farms and solar farms and so on to, to make up the difference. 
Um, a bunch of the people I've talked to on the show have mentioned this guy, Mark Jacobson from Stanford, who has a plan apparently to do it without nuclear power. I was just wondering if you have looked at that at all or if there's some um, problem you have with that um, plan. Yeah, this was the paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, I believe. Uh, I think that has was almost instantly um, torn, torn to shreds by critics. Um, you know, that having been said, if, so actually I don't, I, my understanding is that, that, that the numbers actually don't add up, um, especially when you take into account that uh, the sun doesn't shine at night and uh, in most places the wind doesn't, doesn't blow, but people need power round the clock, uh, rain or shine, and to say nothing of the rest of the world where uh, there's going to be an enormously increased appetite for energy in, in uh, the developing world. And we have no right to uh, withhold it from them. You know, that having been said, if the numbers do add up, then then sure, there's, it, it, it's got to be based empirically on what could work. What I'm most opposed to is the a kind of sentimental approach to uh, climate change, which is let's do things that that are that seem nice and clean and green. Um, let's demonize the uh, oil companies for for selling us the uh, energy we want. Um, uh, any real solution has got to figure out how much energy we we and we meaning the entire world is going to use uh how can we provide it with the least amount of co2 quickly tapering off to zero and eventually to negative that is we're going to have to suck co2 out of the atmosphere probably with forests uh but with whatever we'll, we'll work at doing so I mean, you say in the book, uh, solar panels made with carbon nanotubes can be a hundred times as efficient as current current photovoltaics. Um, but I, I, I guess you're not expecting that to come along anytime soon. Well, there's the the um, no. I, I mean, I, I think it might, but um, but the thing is that it's not going to change the fact that the sun doesn't shine at night uh, and that large parts of the world are cloudy. Um, so the the more energy we get from from solar, the better. But uh, the question is, is it going to supply the world's, uh, the world's needs? Hmm. Um, then another thing I really wanted to ask you about is you, you spent a, quite a bit of the time in this book um, talking about some of the downsides of academia as it's currently constituted. Um, you say uh, prophets of doom are the all-stars of the liberal arts curriculum. Um, could you just talk about like what is the problem now in academia and how do we fix it? Yeah, there are uh, a couple of problems. One of them is that in a lot of the traditional humanities departments, in uh, in English, in uh, in history, in um, uh, that there that uh, there is a uh, uh, there are the deities like Nietzsche and Foucault and um, uh, Derrida and uh, Heidegger uh, who are uh, Pretty gloomy uh, cultural pessimists. They think that Western civilization is uh, doomed. That liberal democracy is no better than fascism. That there's no such thing as truth, or that we can't uh, get at it. Uh, that all statements are paradoxical. And there's kind of a, a nihilism about the institutions of modernity that have really made made the world a lot better off. Um, the other is that they're and, and related because they tend to come from the same sources. Is that there is a um, Enforcement of a narrow intellectual orthodoxy and a, um, you know, a campaign of uh, persecution and, and uh, repression of um, uh, views that don't fit a fairly narrow leftism. Uh, and that, that's a big problem, not just because we need a diversity of viewpoints to, to get at the truth. No, no one is omniscient. No one can come up with a correct theory on the first try without being challenged by, uh, by, by other viewpoints. And also, it, uh, it stains the reputation of the university because then critics on the other side, on the, on the political right, can say, why should we trust anything coming out of the university? It's just a bunch of politically correct um, uh, enforcers. And so I have heard, uh, just yesterday, I got a slew of letters after I published an article in the Wall Street Journal talking, just mentioning climate change. And uh, a lot of the readers wrote back and said, well, don't tell me you believe in climate change. That just comes out of universities, and everyone knows that there's just a left-wing echo chamber in the universities. Now, that, that's total and utter nonsense. You know, I, uh, I know these people, the, the, uh, the climate scientists and planetary scientists and um, geophysicists, and they are not left-wing fanatics. 
But when you've got the university culture uh, developing a reputation for orthodoxy and suppression of um, controversy, which is true in some parts of the university, it paints the university system as a whole to the detriment of the entire society. Well, right. You talk in the book about how um, you suggested that students be taught about rationality and cognitive biases, and you say the suggestion, quote unquote, fell dead born from my lips. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I could not. This was when uh, Harvard tried to reform its general education requirement uh, a while ago. And I made a suggestion, which I think is, is just logical, namely that Psychology has shown that humans left to their own devices are not particularly rational. There's a list of fallacies that we know people are, are vulnerable to. Daniel Kahneman is the most uh, famous um, uh, exponent of that with work he did with Amos Tversky, but also Dan Ariely and Richard Thaler. Uh, and that if you want to be smarter, you've got to spot these fallacies in yourself and, uh, and develop workarounds. Um, that is a prerequisite to everything else, because if you are uh, biased by um, stereotypes or anecdotes, that's going to infect anything you say about anything. So just like you can't do any kind of scholarship without uh, a bit of math, without literacy, uh, you can't do it without a bit of, of uh, rationality in the sense of uh, debugging your own uh, flaws and biases. I mean, this is a, a keystone of the so-called um, rationality movement, and, and I suspect that a number of the listeners here are, are uh, members of that movement. And um, I think it should be uh, embedded in our educational system, starting in elementary school. So how, how do we make that happen? Well, it's uh, <laughs> I did my best unsuccessfully. I, you know, I think we've got to spread the word in the same way that in the 20th century, it gradually became common knowledge that the more kids who know how to read and write, the better the whole society is. Uh, more kids who know how to how to add and and, and subtract, uh, and likewise, uh, we have to just spread the the uh, understanding that um, escaping our own cognitive biases is a prerequisite to being rational. That uh, we're we're all too likely to be swayed by anecdotes and, and vivid memories, and that some degree of statistical appreciation is uh, part of being smart. It sounds like one of the things that has to happen is that atheists and agnostics have to start voting. You say that um, that atheists and agnostics vote at something like one-third the rate of uh, evangelicals. Yeah, uh, that was an unpleasant surprise <laughs> that, uh, when I was looking around and on the, the, the data. But yeah, um, uh, the, the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E, not N-U-N, uh, the people who say that they have no religion, uh, they stay home on election day. Now, partly, and that means, whereas the evangelicals, they are told to get out and vote, and, and get out and vote they do. And they vote for the same candidate. In the case of the most recent election, that would be Donald Trump. Uh, and so you do have a distortion of political power compared to popular sentiment, because uh, there are people who, who uh, don't exercise the franchise. Now, these may be related in that a lot of the people who are... Um, atheists or, or nuns, uh, it's not so much that they've read you know, David Hume and Bertrand Russell and Spinoza and they've <laughs> been persuaded by arguments that God does not exist. They're just disengaged from everything. They don't go to church. They don't join bowling leagues. They don't join service organizations. You know, they stay home and uh, you know, watch TV or, or get lost in, in Facebook. Who knows? But they are kind of disengaged from civil society as a whole, and that includes both religion and politics. Uh, and it is an unfortunate development because uh, you end up with um, basically the evangelicals controlling the country uh, over the um, um, misgivings or objections of the majority, because the majority, not enough of the majority vote. Yeah. I mean, I think one way to put it would be that conservatives are people who think that the past was better than the present, and liberals are people who think that the past was worse than the present. And your book provides a lot of data that the past was worse than the present. Would you say that your book basically confirms liberal intuitions, or is that overstating it? I mean, there there is something to that. Um, liberal, not in the sense of of leftism or Marxism, but liberal in the in the sense of uh, trying to move beyond tradition and uh, tribalism and uh, clan sentiments 
and uh, trying to uh, improve the condition of uh, society based on uh, knowledge. So that is um, a kind of liberal idea. On the other hand, there is a kind of, if you'll pardon the oxymoron, a kind of liberal conservatism that, uh, that uh, originating with Ed, Edmund Burke, the, probably the first intellectual conservative, who said, you know, we don't really understand society well enough to just implement fixes to problems from the top down based on some guy's theory that can be stated in three sentences. A society is a complex, organic whole. Sometimes you implement something and there are unforeseen consequences. The, the cure is worse than the, the disease. I mean, he had the French Revolution in mind, and, and he's probably right about that. And so there's you know, some grounds for you know, some caution for, for not blowing off uh, things that have worked well that you can't necessarily uh, defend. And uh, although I could, the reason I call it liberal conservatism is that that itself is a kind of intellectual assessment of how we make society best off. Uh, and it, it's not mindless, you know, don't change anything ever, but it's just be mindful of uh, institutions and traditions that might be might work in ways that we don't yet understand. Well, what you were just saying about Edmund Burke makes me think of what you were saying about um, Philip Tetlock and how you predict the future accurately. And basically, according to him, the way you predict the future accurately is not to have a theory of how the world works, because um, that just leads you astray. Yeah, in a way, especially if you have some grand theory, some you know overarching narrative about the arc of history. And indeed, in, when Phil Tetlock uh, actually conducted a tournament in which people were challenged to, to predict events uh, several months or several years out, uh, the, the people who had a grand theory uh, did, did the worst. <laughs> they predicted things that didn't happen and vice versa. And the people who, who were the best were kind of the nerds who uh, applied Bayesian reasoning, which is to say they started out with a, a prior, a, a general expectation of how things would work given uh, all, all things being equal, kind of the, the base rate of how often things happened in the past. And then they kind of nudged it up or down depending on recent events, trying to use as many kinds of evidence as possible and being wary of cognitive biases like falling in love with your own hypothesis and defending it come what may. Right. Well, and, and he was saying that it's basically impossible to predict events more than five years in the future, but that must be at some pretty low level of granularity, right? Because it seems like you could predict there will be more atheists in the world in 50 years or something. It seems like a pretty safe uh, assumption. <laughs> yeah, I th that's a, it's a good point. And, uh, and you're right that he, he was looking at a, a pretty fine level of granularity. Uh, so, you know, our, our, our computers will be better in 50 years. You know, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> Right. Um, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. And he was looking at events like, will an additional country um, leave the European Union or will Russia annex additional territory in Ukraine? Uh, and there the predictive validity falls to zero five years out. Yeah. yeah. OK, so just to sort of to sum up the book a little bit, I just want to read two quotes that I think are really, really good. So you say uh, people may be likelier to acknowledge a problem when they have reason to think it is solvable than when they are terrified into numbness and helplessness. And keep some perspective. Not every problem is a crisis, plague, epidemic or existential threat. And not every change is the end of this, the death of that or the dawn of the post something era. Yes, uh, those are. Um, uh, I think those are, those are uh, indeed messages that I hope readers will uh, take away from Enlightenment now. Yeah, I also just want to mention that um, for word lovers, this is just a great book for word lovers. I just wrote down some of the great words I came across. Uh, you got irredentist, bean passant, clerisy, praxis, philippics, anxiogenic, perfervid, veridical, desiderata, hermeneutic, sybaritic, adjure. Um, is that I know you, uh, you 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 work on a dictionary? Did you uh, has that uh, bolstered your vocabulary? Well, I am, or? You know, in, in my I, I certainly did consult the American Heritage Dictionary, for which I serve as chair of the usage panel. But also in my day job, I uh, study the psychology of language. I studied how kids learn their mother tongue, how the brain processes words and grammatical constructions. And so I'm naturally interested in language, which I also put to use in my own writing. And in fact, I tried to combine them in my book, The Sense of Style, which is a writing manual that was inspired by cognitive science and psycholinguistics. And uh, as a reader, I, I like it when a writer 
occasionally sends me to a dictionary or reminds me of a word that I haven't seen in a while. So I used some what I thought were were uh, uh, well-chosen words, and occasionally I would make up one of my own. So anxiogenic, for example, namely causing anxiety, is one that I, uh, I, I coined myself to talk about one of the bad habits of the media. Hmm. So, so do you prefer it when writers send people to the American Heritage Dictionary? <laughs> yes, I'd have, to, uh, I'd have to plug the dictionary that I'm connected with. Yeah. Okay, so we're uh, pretty much out of time. Do you have any, just any final thoughts, anything you didn't get a chance to mention? Um, I think we, we covered a lot of topics, and I just want to thank you for such a uh, an intelligent and well-informed uh, conversation. Uh, i got to say, this is one of the more enjoyable ones that I've had because we started at such a high level. So it's just my compliment to you for uh, for, for preparing and for ke- keeping it at a, at a at a high level of, uh, of uh, intellectual uh, sophistication. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much. No, that means a lot to me. Um, okay, so we'll wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Stephen Pinker, and this new book is called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. So, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Stephen Pinker for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank W. Michael Gear for sponsoring today's show. Learn more about his new science fiction novel, Outpost, over at gear-gear.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.